Welcome to the Lit Collective podcast, Unbraiding the Canon. I'm Loma Silvana-Jones. And I'm Anika Majid. For this week, the text that we've chosen is The White Card, a play by Claudia Rankine. And this is my choice for this week. And the main reason I chose this is just because I like the fact that it really doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to its kind of themes of race politics uh, in America. It really just goes there yeah. in a quite unapologetic way, which is why I liked it. And our wonderful guest for today's episode is Annalisa. So if you'd like to introduce yourself, Annalisa. Hi, I'm Annalisa. Um who am I? Um, well, part of the Lit Collective. Um, and I am also the founder of Farmer, which is an organisation based in Sheffield that looks at Black heritage, history and culture. Amazing. We're big fans of Farmer, obviously. Yay. Um, I'm just going to, at the beginning, outline a little bit about the characters for mm. all those listening that haven't necessarily read the play. The play is actually only in two scenes. So there's one main scene that's almost the entire play, um, all set around a dinner party at the Spencer's house. And then there's a scene at the end, which is much shorter, which just has the character of Charlotte, the artist, and the kind of patriarch of the family, Charles Hamilton Spencer, uh, which takes place in Charlotte's gallery space. So I'm just going to outline a bit about the characters. So Charlotte Cummings is female and black, a graduate of Yale who's 40-ish and who's an artist that works in photography and has received lots of prizes and acclaim and comes from an academic family background. There's Eric Schmidt that comes from a lineage of art dealers and gallery owners um, that are very prestigious in the New York area. And he's on the board of lots of foundations and has curated lots of fancy collections. There's Charles Hamilton Spencer. Um, it's the Spencer's household where the dinner party is taking place. He's described as a white male entrepreneur, art collector in his early 60s, and he's a very well-respected philanthropist. There's his wife, Virginia Compton Spencer, who's female, white. She's around 55 and was in her early 20s an art consultant for corporate clients but after they got married she's just been a fancy new york lady of leisure and then one of their two sons appears in the play alex compton spencer who's a white male who's 20 years old and is at columbia university and is an avid activist he sees his parents as part of the problem, which I feel like is quite a core part of his character. Mm-hmm. But obviously he comes from the same privileged background, um, being raised by the parents that he's been raised at. So it's the Spencer's house and they're hosting this dinner where they've invited Charlotte and Eric, the art dealer, is kind of a long-term friend of the family. And so he's sort of part of the family unit and Charlotte is the only non-white person in the play, which I think is quite interesting. So that's just a little bit of background. And then as the dinner goes on, more and more sort of unfolds. So that's all I'm going to give away so far. (laughs) So as is our general format, I having chose it 
have read the play before, thought a bit about it, whereas you guys, Annalisa and Anika, are both reading it for the first time and giving some fresh new first impressions of what you thought on your first reading of the play. So, Anika, do you want to give us some of your first impressions first? Well, a a number of things, I think. I think the one mistake I made before reading it for the first time was I didn't read the preface. And I think the preface gives a lot about what the intentions of the play is. But I think, and I don't think I'm alone in this, it's an overbearing feeling of like anger and, and, and discomfort reading it for the first time because it's... It's one of those conversations and I was trying to think it over of um, have I been in a conversation like this before? How realistic is how it, um, how this is like turned out? And it's like the breakdown of a conversation like very, very rapidly where, you know, one woman of colour is trying so desperately to save the conversation and save all of the feelings of all these white people around her. But the as is always the case the sort of the questions of her identity and her morality is always sort of pushed into her own face it's like she's not the one who's bringing up the conversations of race they're sort of throwing it at her and she has to like deal with it somehow so I was I think I have a lot of feelings about like all of the characters as a whole but those that was my first impression just sort of like claustrophobic like oh my god this is this is just getting bad to worse yeah no, I definitely I definitely feel the claustrophobia it is a very weird space I feel like that's probably why it's so kind of applicable because even if you've mm-hmm. not necessarily been in that kind of conversation I think we've all been to like a dinner or like a meeting or some kind of space because I suppose it is a sort of dinner meeting isn't it yeah sort of trying to get her to give them a collection of her art. And I think we've all been in those spaces at work or kind of at family events and stuff where it's just going from bad to worse so quickly and getting more and more tense and people are just putting their foots in their mouths. So I think that is something I really like about the setup. What about you, Lisa? What were your kind of initial thoughts? Um, Yeah, my initial thoughts were quite similar, but... Um, I mean, I really liked the play and I thought it was a really great um, kind of recollection or, you know, kind of um, speaking to recent events and to the time that we're in. Um, And like, I also was like trying to think, have I been in situations like this before? And I was like, yeah, I have been. And so it was just, um, yeah, really good reading it. Um, And I think when we're talking about sort of like the different characters um, and like thinking about that, I've definitely been in um, places where there's been an Alex um, or there's been a woman um, like Virginia. um, Mm -hmm. And 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 I think I'm I I have been surrounded actually by quite a few people who are Virginia. So (laughs) I think it's very interesting. how the play speaks to kind of how white people own or identify their privilege and what they do with it. It's like when you look at the characters of like Alex compared to his mom um, and just the difference in them, but also Alex also doesn't necessarily recognize at some level that he's born into it as well. Um, So I just thought it was a very interesting play that speaks to, yeah, many different things. Definitely. I think for me, 
I, I'm never sure which one I'm more annoyed at because there's obviously <laughs> yeah. the son Alex with his sort of white savior complex who's yeah. on the one hand better because at least he's sort of engaging with the fact that black people in America are just getting a terrible time from all angles and that the American system is just structurally horrific but at the same time he is sort of almost speaking for people in a very white savory yeah. way constantly throughout the the whole thing and doesn't seem to understand that you know just because he goes to all these things mm. it, it's not the same when he gets to you know put his fancy blazer back on yeah. and like skip back to mommy and daddy's fifth avenue uh kind of yeah. palace and whereas like virginia i think she's the one that really like stabs me because that mum character that kind of whole I think we've all met those women like in so many situations and and men and kind of all sorts of people. But just those people who were just like, oh, do we really have to make it about race? Do we have to make (laughs) it about race? Can we not all get along? Does it have to be, you know, the race? And I think that's the thing. I think that's why I love the title, the white card, Mm. because she's sort of almost the exact person where after a dinner party like this, she would sort of whisper to someone, oh, do they have to play the race card really at dinner? <laughs> and I feel like we've all had to deal with so many of those people. And I don't know about you guys, but I find since we're all people who are kind of in and out of academic institutions, kind of doing, you know, undergrads and masters and PhDs and things. And I know um, you all kind of write as Amika from a journalism perspective and Annalisa you're just always writing amazing things, whether it comes to kind of like you doing TED Talks or it comes to you writing all of your amazing kind of work for your kind of book on adoption and everything like that. Like we're, we're all, I would say, quite academically creative in like a weird way, in like a cross-section. And obviously these characters with the artists coming from a very academic art perspective I feel like we can kind of relate with her even though it's this Americanized version I did pick this because I do feel like it is so applicable to the kind of situations Mm -hmm. that we maybe kind of come into Um, even though obviously these characters are kind of older and Charlotte Cummings the artist is sort of in her 40s and things it I think there's a lot that you can reflect on these conversations and that's kind of why I like it but what do you guys think? Do you guys think there's like a most kind of morally reprehensible character out of all these characters that are essentially kind of, I would say kind of cannibalizing blackness in all different ways. Each one of them is sort of like trying to profit out of blackness, aren't they, in some kind of way. Do, would you guys say that there's one that you think is worse than the others? So for me, um, probably, well, I think they're all quite similar, but Charles for me is somebody who is clearly a person who is profiting from the art. Yeah, quite and, literally. And literally, and collecting the Black Death. Um, mm. and, and and I think what you just said a minute ago, what you just touched on, is quite similar to actually what happens in um, 
academia or what happens in the art it, like it does happen in the art world here um I'll use an example for um I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago um with some um researchers um who from the University of Sheffield who were discussing about um slavery and they've done this project and I thought it was really interesting because the conversations that were happening was how do we create it was um it was a meeting with like artists and researchers and how do we both collaborate together and um the conversations were talking about sort of slavery and uh, i mean that's what the the whole symposium was about but then um one of the artists brought up about um black joy and about you know not just celebrate like um that we should be celebrating other things and not just slavery and that shouldn't be kind of the um the go to the, the focus of it yeah and I just yeah. thought that is and, and so when you think about when I'm thinking when I was reading the, the play and I was thinking about um Charles collecting Black Death and I'm thinking this is the thing like white people want to yeah. focus so much on the um on our struggles on our like sad times <laughs> instead of celebrating the great stuff you know what like and so yeah so I just thought for me it's Charles the fact that he is literally profiting off Black Death and not really recognizing what he is doing by doing so um yeah mm. yeah I, I suppose you're right because he's got kind of the most economic power in the situation it's like the patriarch of the family and the kind of the orchestrator of all these massive art projects that like you say just keep focusing in on black bodies in really violent grotesque yeah. horrible situations and like you say they they very much overshot any idea of like celebrating blackness and gone to this really macabre place of just collecting like mementos of black struggle over and over again and like you say profiting off them massively um and I suppose that's that's why it's so kind of interesting that the kind of artist of Charlotte kind of slowly tries to maybe edge them towards that realization throughout the dinner party. Um, and they're like, no, no, what, what are you talking about? We're, we're amazing. Like, look at all these yeah. black artists we're supporting. And, you know, look at all these like depictions of black people we have in our own home. And, and she's just like, well, this is really macabre and awful, actually. I can't believe you mm -hmm. brought me here to have dinner <laughs> in amongst all these like horrific depictions of absolute profound tragedy. Mm. Um, what about you Anika do you agree do you think it's Charles many thoughts but I don't I think for me Charles and Charles the most for like the quite literal problem that he I think invests in private prisons which like, for a black Americans is like the prison prison industrial complex is like one of the biggest like institutions of racism for them and the, I think that's when the conversation really went downhill in the play as soon as like they found out that that's what he also invests in is that you know on the one hand he's heralding this black um um art from black artists and things but he's also in the same breath sort of attributing to their downfall I don't because I feel like Alex infuriated me the first time I read it because he just like I think I wrote in the margins that he just sounds like a robot like all of these marketing yeah. buzzwords he just spews out like white privilege yeah, white all the politically tears. correct buzzwords yeah. yeah like he's the he's probably the most annoying one but I think 
he uses his performance, his performative outrage to sort of, it's, it's quite all in the family. He's doing it to maybe um, rebel against his parents. Because I think there's a few lines that really got to me about him when Charlotte asks him, do you think all of these protests that you're going to really help? And he says, I don't ask, ask that question. I just go. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, like what? Do, so it is just a it's just a, a platform for your outrage. You're, you're not really thinking about what the root cause of this problem is and where he goes. He, and that when he there's really annoying where he and he and Charlotte are left alone and they're talking about his brother Tim and he's like he went to prison and everything and he said to her like oh you wouldn't get it like to her and it's like like how tone deaf do you have to be to say that to a black woman that you don't get like incarceration um but I suppose Charles is the more I'd say sinister one, Charles and Eric probably, in the sense that right from the beginning of the play, they assume the authority, they assume the power in the room, pretty much in every room they're in, I'm assuming. And it's interesting reading the preface of the book and seeing what Rankine's purpose was in in writing the play when I think she was doing a reading of one of her other collections, a white man asked her, what can I do to help you? What can I do? And her without tr- without trying to hurt his feelings, because of course he's she's been confronted by this very well read man. He's probably read all of the James Baldwin and Toni Morrison he could. But as soon as she said like, "Oh, I think you need to focus on helping you," he get he gets under the offensive, and he's like, "Well, nobody's going to want to uh, ask you any questions if that's how you answer." And I think that's exactly what happened in the play with Charles and Eric and Virginia is that they they it's so like sinisterly well read like they just list all of these like different artists and all of the um, abu- um police abuses that have happened in America as if like they read it from a brochure but then as soon as they even have the suggestion of looking inward at their own sort of place and how they're sort of antagonizing Charlotte they're automatically on the defensive and you see what their true colors are so I think they're all like what gets me is that they put themselves above what they think are racists for surely doing the bare minimum in treating black people like human beings with decency and like I think in the beginning of- I would say they don't do they 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 don't treat black people like humans they don't treat them with decency because if they did they wouldn't be collecting Mm. all these like macabre kind of pieces Mm. of like black history would they in their own like superficial way the way they've categorized what a racist is I think in in their minds yeah yeah, like they white supremacist exactly Mm. they've um they I think they were talking about Serena and Venus Williams and how um somebody called them derogatory names and things and like oh that's disgusting blah 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 like that's mm-hmm. what they've automatically that's what a racist is but I'm not that but bias yeah they've created a, a, a really clear line haven't they be- yeah. between kind of a very discreet mm-hmm. easily identified form mm-hmm. of racism and the kind of racist subterfuge that is all interactions in racialized society they've like automatically categorized themselves as like the good white people who are here to help which just sort of like emphasizes that they're part of the problem and they're like the main 
like body of people getting in the way which I think they I think yeah and what you said just before about them failing to look inward I think is just so important to the whole play Mm -hmm. isn't it because they're they're so ready whether it's Alex turning up to protests or you know Virginia kind of wanting to praise Serena Williams Mm -hmm. or Charles and Eric buying all this art that's kind of produced by black people and depicts black people they're so willing to willing to do these kind of external movements and external kind of processes and to do all of that but there is a complete lockdown isn't there when like the white fragility really sets in when they're caused to like reflect on themselves internally at all yeah um which I just think is really nice to to watch in this kind of way and something that it kind of draws to mind for me that I loved about the play and I think it's so great because I don't know how much theatre you guys watch. And obviously in the pandemic, our options for watching theatre have been like severely minimal. But I used to love going to the Sheffield Crucible whenever I could, um, obviously back in safer times. And I love the fact that this one is specifically staged in the round so that the audience, it says, have to be able to look at each other across the staging area. And I think that's so important because I think anyone that's gone to a play here, like in the UK, will know that the demographics are usually extremely white. Mm. Um, Often I'll go to a play and I'll be the only brown woman there or you'll make awkward eye contact with like the only other person of colour in the room in like a massive like thousand seat theatre. And I think it's really, there's something really uncomfortable and necessary about making audience members look each other in the eye in that same kind of curated space because this kind of like formal work dinner party it is a bit of a theatre isn't it I like the fact that it forces the audience into that conversation in a way that they probably don't want to be so they too can't distance themselves from what's happening how effective do you think this would be do you think like especially if it was like staged here with it being a US-based narrative, like how effective do you think it would be? Do you guys think it would make an impression on people or do you think it would go absolutely over people's heads? No, I think it would make an impression. Like, well, I was reading it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this would be amazing to actually ha- produce. Like, and I was thinking, okay, is there a way I can do this? <laughs> but I was like, this would be fantastic in Sheffield at the Crucible se- at the Crucible Theatre. Um, and I think I don't think it would go over people's heads because this is the reality. This is what's happening. And I think especially if it was to be shown in Sheffield, um, I think that as um, a city, we're currently under review in terms of the Racial Equality Commission, that I think that a play like this actually really speaks to the times that we're in and really um, would, in some sense, force the white people to um, look at look at themselves, especially if it was in the Crucible, which we know the demographic is majority mm. white. I mean, I've been in the Crucible when there's only been like five people and it's been a full filled theatre 900 people or whatever and there's just five people of colour in there so (laughs) like I think if this play was shown there I mean that would just be incredible Mm. um yeah I think my worry when I say go over people's heads I I don't I don't think for a second that people wouldn't understand it 
I'm more worried about like willful denial because I think we've got such yeah. track record yeah, in, yeah. in this country, particularly when it comes to America. Yes. That we love to say it's a problem in America. It's not a yeah. problem here. This is what happens in America, not here. And we like to really use America to sort of like wedge between mm. the bad people and whatever we're supposed mm. to be. Yeah. And sort of draw a line and say that, oh, well, it's so much worse there. Like, look at the guns, look at this, look at that. It's such a homegrown problem as well, because I think when even when you're in school, the only slavery that we're taught is about sort of American slavery. It's never about our part yeah. in it. It's never about the racial division in our country. So it's always been a sort of America as scapegoat. So I don't. Yeah, and all the black history we're taught is American black history at exactly. the end of the day. It's not British black history. It's not necessarily very applicable at all to actual black British mm. people. Yeah. I, f- I feel like I'm in two parts about it because I, on one, I can see how it would, how sort of British white people could distance themselves from it because it's an American play. But then again, the structure of it, of the play, having people look at each other whilst the fact that the play is very blunt like it's it tells you like straight away yeah, I, what, I love what the it's about there's no think, edging about it so I, I think feel, when you edge you give people that same like deniability don't you, you give that yeah. people the same option to be like it's not you mm-hmm. it's us but which yeah, is continue. incredibly meta of the play because I feel like that's what Charlotte tried to do in the beginning really edge through the conversation but then like halfway through it just goes goes in it and add it and it's like you can't not look at it and I think the the last scene with where you find Charles sort of like taking off his clothes and looking at his skin is the most telling out of all of them and it's like okay no this is what the play is about and you have to look at this you have to look at your own skin um I suppose like because when I was reading it I was like I would love to actually watch this play because I feel like to really understand the play you have to watch it and watch it be acted so I think it would definitely be something interesting to actually see it and see what happens definitely I think because it's such a visual play isn't Mm -hmm. it because she's so specifically a photographic Mm -hmm. kind of art artist she kind of uses it for all these installations and it's the fact she's recapturing these real images Mm -hmm. and like you were talking about the end once Charles has realized that her latest art installation that everyone's raving over is actually made up of his skin zoomed Mm -hmm. in on to the fact that you can't tell it's him but then he suddenly realizes oh my god all these pictures of white skin that you've used are me yeah um and you've been kind of following me around taking pictures of me in all these like public posh places where I exercise my privilege um and even like you say in the fact that he kind of strips his clothes off and is like fine I consent to you taking pictures of me even then he doesn't ask her if she wants to take pictures of him mm-hmm. it, it's still this kind of it's still the white saving narrative because mm-hmm. he's still going okay fine I consent to this but he never asks her what she consents to he never asks her if she wants this mm-hmm. old white man stripping off in her studio in the middle of the day where he's just walked in um and I, I find it all I find all those different like mirrors through photography so interesting mm. but then at the same way, time I worry about their effectiveness yeah I don't really see what you're saying no even the way like 
she managed to she took the photos like the fact that he didn't even recognize her do you know what I mean like yeah. she approached him and he didn't recognize her and so it, again mm-hmm. it's that whole not seeing her um and we know what that's like not as seeing. people of color you know not being seen so I think that was telling as well oh gosh that mm. reminds me I'm just going to go off on a slight tangent that just reminds me of um oh gosh I, I went to a, a theater production back in the day it was like 10 years ago now and I've forgotten her name she's the woman the black woman from Fresh Meat you guys know who I'm talking about she's like a tall I think mixed race black woman anyway she's like she was an actress in this play and I went up to get um the autograph of the playwright because I think it was a Michael Frame play and he's like super old and I'd read loads of his stuff um and I was sort of like talking to him and saying how much I like the play. And this kind of massive theatre lovey man comes up and starts talking to me because he thinks I'm the actress's sister because he's just seen, because I get mistaken as I think because of my curly hair and stuff, even though I'm a brown woman, I get mistaken for a mixed race black woman quite a lot and being six foot. And um, he has this whole conversation with me before he kind of goes to my blank face. Are you not so-and-so? And then as soon as he realizes I'm not, I don't exist anymore. And he just sort of breezes off somewhere else. And I was just sort of like stood there really confused, sort of like on the one hand, I guess it's, I guess I'm flattered because this woman is really gorgeous. And I guess I would like to be her sister, but also how strange that you just, you've clearly seen sort of a few indicators when you've looked at me and I've just become a role for you. And you've just projected. It's just interesting when you get those little insights about how people just project onto our bodies and things and Mm -hmm. kind of create these whole narratives that don't exist. I always find it, I don't even get angry. I just find it really fascinating watching how people's minds work in this really bizarre way. I don't know, because I'm sure you guys have got kind of similar things. But that, like you say, that seeing and not seeing, that kind of projecting a whole narrative in the one instance, she's this like coveted artist and they really want to get her work. But as soon as she's not in that frame, she's just like this faceless black woman who's taking photographs that they don't need to pay any mind to. I just think it's really interesting because we've probably all had those moments kind of in and out of life, especially in these sorts of institutionally elite places. I think that really makes it more common. A hundred percent. And I think... Um, like I work in the arts and cultural industry and I think it is so so common for white people to use you when it fits when it suits them they see you then when they Mm -hmm. need something that Mm -hmm. suits their gallery or suits a project that they're working on but as soon as that's done that's it you're no longer off use to them and I think it's really interesting um, how the being seen and not being seen is kind of played out um and just the privileges and the powers that white people have that they just do not refuse to see um and even if they claim that they are trying to um become anti-racist um (laughs) but they're still enacting their powers and so Mm -hmm. i think it's um that that part for me in the play 
really spoke to me because I was like yeah like that's happened to me many times where I've been somewhere or even I've been in a in a meeting before where um and I won't mention names where uh, somebody who is a white person who has a lot of power in um particular institutions and especially in the arts and cultural industry um I was in a meeting once and I was chatting to um somebody else um, and this person literally came up, cut the conversation off and carried on talking about her thing. And I was just like, wow, like, do you not see me? Do you not see that I'm standing here in the middle of this conversation? And I think, and this is somebody who has a lot of power in the industry. And I just think it's really, really interesting how white people enact um, violence and how they enact their powers um, and they seemingly don't realize it massively and I think like what you were saying it's really interesting the way that because you were saying Anika it really unravels fast but the, the play does have that kind of souring that happens mm. to the atmosphere what starts off as quite a simpering attempt to sort of get her art assigned over to them becomes a very sort of sour bit bit of space and I think that's such an interesting thing isn't it when the as soon as you ask people to self-reflect, particularly people that have power, the dynamic changes from we are equal to we have ownership over this space and you've overstepped your bounds. And, and I guess then it's always the implication that you somehow played the race card and yeah. you somehow soured the atmosphere. And I think that's why I love Rankine choosing to call it the white card so much because it really kind of pokes at that in a really obvious way. Mm-hmm. um because like you say I, I think it's so interesting that things are often so nice and so comfortable until you question people particularly in a racial arena because it's almost like when it comes to sort of I don't know if you guys find this like feminism gender politics um even sometimes queer politics in these academic spaces people feel really on point they feel like they really know what to say but then when it comes to race something really shifts people do not like it and I think it's so interesting that we've naturally gone into sort of all these personal details because one thing we want to do at the end of each podcast is obviously go into the kind of more personal aspect of how these texts affect us because we've all kind of joined the Lit Collective because it gives a space for women of colour and non-binary and trans people of colour to basically just kind of bond over this literary area and kind of open up these spaces and I think it's really interesting that sometimes the kind of personal just opens up on its own when it comes to women of color talking about race and people of color talking about race because it kind of it's a natural thing for us to apply it to our own lives and and so I just wanted us to kind of focus on that a little bit more and go into what it is we feel is so applicable about this to us and why it because I think we all responded really positively to the play even though we've all kind of mentioned how uncomfortable it is to read in some points so I was just wondering if you guys had more reflections from that kind of personal standpoint I mean just sort of relating to the stories that you guys um, just talked about I think it reading the play really made me like reflect on similar situations and then sort of going more existentially into like what 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 is it that these well-meaning white people want from us like why do they feel the need to sort of list 
all of their grievances about racial injustice to us when it suits them. And I think it's really interesting in um, Rankine's own words that I think she quotes um, Hannah Arendt in that the banality of, of evil comes from sentimentality. And in the play, and it just goes to show that why they're focusing on black death so much and all of the horror is that they're trying to appeal on like an emotional level. It's like, oh, I understand this because I'm a mother too, or I'm a father and I understand this. And it's it's as if by say not asking them to like look inward, they take it as oh, them us questioning them that they don't care or that they're um it's a personal attack on them to say that they have no emotions to this which is why they get angry and I'd, I'd suppose that's why you know that's what it all boils down to at the end is that it's them showcasing quite literally showcasing in this case because all of them all of the white people here are collectors they're art dealers but they're they're not the ones making the art it's always it's charlotte the black person who's making the art but they want a place to showcase their anger and how much they care, but aren't willing to actually do the work and deal with it as well. And I think that goes for all sort of performative activism on the part of white people is that they want to show that they care, but they don't, they don't realize that they need to work within themselves in order to get there. I know what you mean. And also, cause I don't have a, I don't have like an out and out problem with white allyship. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really dangerous when you have these like labels like white ally Mm -hmm. um, and people misunderstand that the label is enough. Mm -hmm. Like just because you put it on your Instagram profile does not make it so. Um, Like you say, it's something that involves like a lot of constant work and a lot of self-reflection. And I think it's really important as well that we kind of address the fact that this is a play about black experience particularly because mm. I feel like there's a lot of false black allyship that we have to admit in mm. the community of people of color like at the mm. end of the day there's anti-blackness is rife within the within communities of people of color and again people can be very very defensive when it comes to reflecting that they could mm. be a brown woman and still be absolutely perpetrating anti-blackness in all sorts of ways throughout their lives um and people people generally people don't like doing work people don't like <laughs> self-reflecting people don't like to go to therapy go to counseling go to whatever it is they need to go to to work on themselves people hate doing it and i think racism is one of the ways for me that i see that reflected most in the world mm-hmm. because people are far more worried about being called racist, aren't they? Than actually what destructive forces they may be putting out into the world. People are much more concerned with whatever it is people might see them as. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, I don't know, I think one of my favorite bits of the book, I don't know if you guys kind of would agree, but for me, it's the fact that I remember when I was, kind of I was just reading the book for this podcast and my partner kind of like looked over um and he kind of squinted um and he's black if that gives you any context but he kind of squinted and was really confused and he was like I thought you said this was a play about black people it's only got one black character in it and um I was like I mean it's a very fair point 
Mm. Um, but I do think it's really great that she's kind of the only character with character development, wouldn't you say? Mm. Yeah. And I think it's important though that because yeah. she focuses on whiteness, she doesn't focus, she, it's not blackness per se, she's focusing mm-hmm. on here. And I think a lot of the conversations when we talk about race, it's always around blackness, it's always around mm-hmm. sort of being black, embracing black, or just the di- black bodies. But here she's focused on whiteness mm-hmm. and how whiteness is violence and white supremacy. And I think it's just very, very clever. So I think mm-hmm. even though there is just one black person, I think this works super well. Yeah. And then even like um like you mentioned, um Charlotte's character, how she develops throughout the play as well. Um, and I think for me, what really stri- strikes me was um, at the beginning when she was describing her art and she's speaking about, you know, who gets lost, who gets left behind. And that's what mm-hmm. she's interested in um, displaying. And I think that for me really spoke because it's something that I'm really interested in as a person in the work that I do in the work that I produce and the work that I um, write about. It is about sort of who is left out the conversation, especially when we're looking mm-hmm. um, and I'll use Shefford as an example, cause we live here, but um, especially when we're looking um, in sort of the, the industry as a whole, so the arts industry as a whole, who is missing? Like when you, I mean, the, the, one of the premises of for why our male was, set up in the first place was because um the lack of representation um on the scene and that's not just like in the art that's displayed but the art that it's made by the same when you look at sort of the festivals who is creating these festivals but who's also being presented on these festivals who you know and so for me a lot of the work that I do is about sort of um or originated from this whole kind of concept of who gets left behind who's missing and then I think in in my own space in how I've developed as a creative as a producer as a writer as a communications professional is kind of um looking more at sort of the powers and the structures and the dynamics and I think this play really looks at that very cleverly and it's it's really well Mm. well written it is interesting that um Charlotte is the only one with character development she's the one who looks at herself and flips her own her own words essentially because I think the reason why she focused on Charles at the end was the fact that she was she had to look at her own work in the way that they described it to her it's like oh well how is this autopsy report of Michael Brown different from what you do and then she was like is this how you see my work the same as this and it really caused her to reckon like who her audience was and Mm -hmm. to the white people in the play her audience are them it's like, well, what does your art mean if it doesn't speak to me when they didn't ask her who she thought her audience were? And it, um, if if that is the case, if white people are her audience, then she's going to focus in on them at the end. She's going to look at their skin now and cause them to look inward. And I think it was really interesting for me because I think this play was written in 2018. So that was before... Um, George Floyd and before the BLM protests of last year and it was really interesting sort of looking at that looking at the play and then looking at recent things that have happened now and sort of well I mean I don't know what you guys um, your what your guys impressions were of last year but it was one of the first times where you know the white people were reckoned with we did get you know the trial of Derek Chauvin I think his name was and 
you know we made people look inwardly and there was so much like protests going on and everything like all over the world so it's it is like a changing thing I don't know if like I don't know what you guys your guys impressions are were of like the prey as a as regards to now but I think we live we we live in a different time I think well different program I think that's interesting because um, I was I was interested because it seemed quite optimistic what you thought kind of the idea that kind of protests um mm-hmm. following uh the murder of George Floyd and the entire Black Lives Matter movement that you found and I, and I do agree like obviously protests and visibility is important mm-hmm. but I've kind of in the opposite way I feel like everything that has happened and obviously I'm not speaking as a black person, I'm speaking as a brown person, so it's not mm. going to be the same. It's not going to be as kind of visceral for me because I've got that kind of level of separation. But right. just that fact that so many horrific images were just being plastered yeah. all over the internet. And there was quite a large disregard for the weight that that mm-hmm. put on particularly yeah. black people having to see that mm-hmm. and I think that for me is one of the ways that then when you look at this play it's obvious that they don't care because if you cared mm-hmm. about the absolute destruction of yeah. black bodies mm-hmm. you would not be hanging them in your living room you would yes. not be able to be so-called reminded of them constantly mm-hmm. and yeah. somehow care without caring in this kind of double standard place in which apparently you care but you can stand to look at that all the mm-hmm. time like you, you can't have it both ways because if you're really affected in any way like even as a brown woman I was just I felt sick for most of last year it was mm-hmm. I think a really mentally traumatic year for most people of color but I cannot imagine what kind of count, counterintuitively you might think but what a struggle the whole bringing to light of all the horrific things that are happening to black people all the time must have been because that is a lot of trauma to have to live every day mm-hmm. yeah so I guess for me speaking as a black woman I mean that whole period was horrible it was absolutely mm-hmm. like I took a week of work um because the whole collective trauma just got to me I was in tears 24 7 um and I just felt really really drained and I think it is that thing of when you are constantly seeing um black people um being murdered and just how people just share the videos um and I think that it's really something I think in some sense like living in sort of the digital world I think is is brilliant because we get to see so much things and I think you know if that video hadn't gone viral we wouldn't have been having all these protests we wouldn't um be yeah, there's power and knowledge you know there? there's power in that right but at the same time it's like there's all this collective trauma that you've seen displayed um and people just kind of willingly sharing things mm-hmm. um and I think there needs to be some sort of um like ethic of care like how do we care for mm-hmm. people who are going through um who are seeing this and going through that collective trauma um I think it's interesting Anika that how optimistic you are <laughs> about the protests um so this play was obviously written this play was written obviously before the George Floyd 
George Floyd, the protests of George Floyd, but it was written after the 2016 Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. protests. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, when you look at sort of the two protests and how people reacted um, after them, it's so, so different. And I was one of the leaders who organised the Sheffield one. So mm-hmm. I remember that there was this kind of um, apathy in some sense to protests. So, I mean, the march in Sheffield, it got almost a thousand people and there was um, a mixture of demographics, but it was mainly black people on that march. Um, and then scroll forward to Lash's protests. I mean, that was over three and a half three thousand three and a half thousand um and i know that the police gave the organizers um a larger space to kind of protest um Mm -hmm. we didn't have that kind of level of access in the 2016 one um and there was definitely more white people and i think in some sense i think it was this reaction to everything that was going on last year like we're in Mm -hmm. the middle of the pandemic and all these massive inequalities have been exposed I don't necessarily believe that um, all these people coming out to these protests, like there has been this mass change. I think it is um, woke people up slightly. I think that obviously, like I interviewed um, David Olashoga last year and asked him his thoughts about this. And he was saying about how like, you know, his books had like, gone flown out the window in Celso, Adafri Hershey's, Akala's, and just like people who had, who, I think we all had a lot of time last year to be able to kind of process things a bit more. And obviously we're, we're in this heat of a pandemic, all these inequalities exposed now. I'm interested in seeing kind of the long-term actions. So a lot of things I think have been reactionary. So even people, organizations posting their black squares, that was all reactionary. Mm-hmm. Even people who, organizations, companies who are currently setting up all their anti-racism work, the um, sort of employing EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion officers, and all of that, all of it at the minute to me just feels quite performative. It's the same how I feel about the race equality commission that Sheffield has just recently set up is exactly the same yeah. thing. It's performative. It's, it's let's tick this box. It's, it's just, it's all the reactions. <laughs> and so I am interested in seeing what results. happens long term the yeah. Yeah. results like example with the equality commission report okay great we all know that there's racism here we all know these institutions are, are, yeah. are racist i mean what's that report going to tell me that i don't already know you know yeah. what are the actions how are the council then going to put a framework in to make sure that these organizations and them themselves are held accountable so i think for mm-hmm. me that's what i'm more interested in rather than mm-hmm. this performative allyship um Definitely. and so i mean like you said, there's only so many black squares and rainbows and things <laughs> that people can put out. But if if people are still getting treated the same way, if all the structures mm-hmm. are allowed to stay in place, then there, there isn't like the movement, like you say. we I feel like, especially in academic institutions, there are so many reviews. I feel like things have been reviewed to death, but it's mm-hmm. the reviews ever turning into, like you say, long-term change. That for me, I do feel that, you know, committees are elected, they do whatever they can do within a year, a few years, they move on. And then the new committee almost starts from the exact same point. And it's this kind of very performative treading of water that happens. And I think, I think it happens a lot in so many different intersecting kind of social areas. Um, and I just don't think much moves forward at all. But I think the very, the very core whiteness of the institution itself is probably why it, the institution isn't built for racial progress. 
Yeah. It's a very counterintuitive thing, whether it's like exactly. the New York art in- industry or academic is- institutions across the United Kingdom. I feel like they are not built for well, essentially black success. And that's yeah. not to say black people are never successful in them, but that is not what they are built for. And I think until we really accept that on a core level, it's going to continue to be performative, isn't it? And just to bring us back to the play, just as like closing points, I would just like you guys to think whether or not you think there could be something good from putting on a play like this in Sheffield, because you guys have been quite excited about it, but then we've gone to quite a pessimistic place perhaps. So reflecting on everything we've discussed, what what do you kind of lean towards? Do you think it would serve a purpose or not? So for me, I feel that um, we focus a lot on blackness. And so for me, I feel the fact that this play focuses on whiteness and puts mm-hmm. white privilege and white skin out there mm-hmm. and white bodies out there I think for me is something that I think, yeah, it could work. Whether or not people paid attention, I don't know. But in terms of sort of not letting the content be about blackness all the time and Mm -hmm. literally facing the violence of of white people, I think um, would work on a Mm -hmm. surface level. Yeah. Quite riffing off what Annalisa just said, um, it is not only the case of like seeing whiteness but hearing it and I think that's what's the interesting thing about having the audience in like situated around the dinner table and looking at each other is that while because I think like that from the robotic way that all of the all of the people talk in the play it's sort of asking like do you hear yourself speak when you're speaking like like this and are you like how can you talk so objectively and distantly about you know, something which is really like tearing communities apart. And I suppose I come naturally from quite an optimistic place because I'm still quite naively an optimistic person. Um, I think it would be really good to see a play like this because it does bring a reckoning to sort of the performative activism uh, of a lot of people, as you said. And I think it would just sort of like like look at your white card look at what you're doing and I think it it would I would go watch it and I'd make everyone I know see it but I do think there would be good repercussions probably also bad as you said about um people going over people's head but I do think it's definitely something that should be like looked into and put in put on yeah definitely and I I think for me I don't think I don't necessarily think one book one play anything is going to one poetry pamphlet is going to change the world but that's not the point is it it's it's all of them it's it's the consuming nature of rewriting the face of literature that's what we're doing we're unbraiding the canon and Mm -hmm. we're making space for more viewpoints and more accurate viewpoints I would say because we've been fed kind of one version for so long one canon of what it is to be literary what it is to be artistic for such a long time I do think that there is always value in putting on other viewpoints by black people by brown people um otherwise I don't think we'd be making this podcast um (laughs) but like you say I think it's just that hope isn't it you've got to have that slightly naive hope that 
things little by little are going to make a difference. Otherwise, none of us would get out of bed in the morning at the end of the day. Um, but I'm really glad that all of you enjoyed the play. And it's been so amazing hearing you guys input on it. I feel like I've got so much out of this conversation, mm-hmm. definitely. And it's been so nice to take something that I've just been reading on my own and then have this amazing discussion with you both. So thank you so much, Annalisa, for being our wonderful yes. guest and for really letting us into some really personal places over the course of this podcast. And thank you, as always, my lovely co-host, Anika. <laughs> and thank you, listeners. So that's all from us. This has been the Lit Collective podcast, Unbraiding the Canon. <laughs>